Okay, let's carry on our study uh, this morning in First John. We've gone through the first chapter and we started last week the second chapter. Um, so we're going to pick it up um, from halfway through chapter two in a moment. But just to remind you what John had said uh, previously about his reasons for writing. Now, there's a few things he's already highlighted. One is that we sin not. Uh, but we saw four distinct groups that draw, John was writing to within this overall uh, letter. First uh, John, uh, and he's addressing effectively four stages of Christian maturity. And I guess for us, the question then is, where are we uh, on this scale, if you like, that John gives us? You know, this isn't about how old we are. This is about how mature we are in our walk with the Lord. Now, somebody may be a Christian for their entire life and yet grow very little spiritually. You may have a young believer that's only been uh, walking with the Lord for a short period of time, and yet they may have thrown themselves into to study and wanting to understand the things of the Lord. So we, we see this uh, played out. Firstly, we have this group, Little Children. Uh, that John references. Uh, now, this is where we, we're looking at from verse um, uh, 12 of chapter 2. And he says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Uh, then we go on to, I write to you, fathers, because you've known him. Uh, that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, uh, because you've overcome the wicked one. And the idea, of course, of the fathers is they're more mature. Um, they're those ones you can go to for counsel, for wisdom, for encouragement. The young men are those that are uh, full of that vitality, out on the front line, not, not not afraid to stand up for their faith, not ashamed of the gospel. A uh, lot to learn still. Um, often will make mistakes and yet have that real zeal. And we see an elements of that through the, the disciples and the way that they were. Um, and then, of course, the young children, which in the translations typically is often translated the same way uh, as the beginning of verse 12 is. I write unto you little children, then it says again little children. But the word in the Greek, as we mentioned last time, is different. And it's speaking about those who have uh, progressed from being uh, infants who are always in the, the need of care from someone else to being young people who have not yet got to that place of um, uh, stepping out on their own uh, they still need that um, tutoring from those more mature than themselves so those are the the, the ideas the, the first one again is the idea of born ones uh, kind of bands is the Scottish word it just means again born ones but it's the same, it's the same idea in the, in the Greek it's just the new converts of course the fathers it speaks of the mature saints um, the young men again young adults typically uh, and then the young children best to be you know, understood by us as effectively teenage believers so not teenagers necessarily uh, although it may apply that way um, but people who are in their um, uh, early stages of growth and development as a believer, but uh, are still, again, are growing and learning. So just again, these verses, I've run into little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, the interesting thing is what John says here regarding this first group. Uh, and clearly, they need assurance. Is that you this morning? Are you in a place where you, you feel you continually need that assurance from God? Have you progressed from that or are you still in that place? Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers about the fact that they were still having to take milk and not solid food. They hadn't grown yet uh, beyond needing a bottle, as it were, like a baby. And we see all these stages with a with a, a baby as they grow and they develop. and They get to the point they start taking solid food and things. Of course, the father's 
is that confidence. They have known him that is from the beginning. They have a relationship that they have this assurance, this understanding, this peace that comes from this walk with the Lord. Uh, and again, the interesting thing, of course, fathers are capable of reproduction. Otherwise, they wouldn't be fathers. You know, fathers implies they have children. Um, of course, as a mature saint, you should be reproducing. You should be uh, nurturing others like Paul did with Timothy, bringing them on in the faith, uh, reproducing and encouraging them then to go out uh, and do the same. The young men, as we mentioned a moment ago, it's really that kind of zeal of spiritual youth. They're not afraid of spiritual combat. And we need to be praying for those people within our fellowship that are in this position. Those that are going out on the front line, maybe in their workplaces. There's a lot of challenges out there. There's a lot of temptation out there. Um, but they need to, we need to be praying for wisdom as they have conversations uh, with those around them. David Guzik makes this statement. He said, for this reason, many have sought to stay in spiritual childhood as long as possible. In other words, fearing the conflict. He said, this is wrong. It's like being a draft dodger or a vagrant. We expect children to not fight in wars and be supported by others, but we don't expect it of adults. Uh, well, that's the four groups we've got. And then we build on that as we go into the next verse. And this is all kind of, again, the verses were added in about the 12th century, so they're not part of the, the text. So originally, this had just flown from one verse into the other, as, as we would see it now. And so verse 14, we pick up in chapter 2, and it says, I have written unto you. Okay, so the, the tense changes, because previously John's saying, I write unto you. Now he's saying, I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. Again, reiterating what he's already said, but saying, you know, this is the, the point I've made, that you know you have that relationship. And he says, I've written unto you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Notice the source of strength for these young believers, these um uh, young adult believers in a sense uh, again it's the word of God that abides in them that has made them strong they're not strong of their own volition they're not strong because uh, of anything to do with themselves but it's because of the word of God and because of that because they have hidden the word of God in their heart that they may not sin against him as we read in Psalm 119 that they are able to overcome the wicked one it's only these two then that are, are listed in verse 14, the, the babes, as it were, in Christ, the, the newborn, new, new converted Christians, uh, and those who are the, the younger ones, the teenagers, spiritual teenagers, effectively, are not addressed in this second bit. Um, because then it goes on to tell us that they should not love the world, and we will go on and look at those verses. But that instruction in verse 15 actually applies to the second two groups. Now, of course, it does, by implication, apply to all believers, whatever age you are. But it's speaking to those that have an understanding, have a maturity in their walk with the Lord. I like the Living Bible's translation, uh, paraphrase of this. I read this last week, but it said, And so I say to you, fathers who know the eternal God, and to you, young men who are strong with God's word in your hearts, and have won your struggle against Satan, Stop loving this evil world and all that it offers you. For when you love these things, you show that you do not really love God. So it's not implying that as John's writing this to them, that these ones he's writing to were loving, but he's, he's in, the implication is don't let it become your way of life. Don't let it become an influence, the, the love for this world that pulls you off course. 
So let's pick up now and look at these verses. So from verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. I'll just break this down a little bit as we look at these. So the first thing we're told is then do not love the world. Now, we see the world referenced many times in Scripture. I just want to go through some of the, the references. I've listed some of the ones there. There are many others we could refer to. Matthew thirteen twenty two, It just says, He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the cares of this world. And the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Do you see how the world and the word are in opposition to each other? If, if you love the word, then you're not going to love the world. If you love the world, you're not going to love the word. These two are complete diametrically opposed to each other. Of course, this is from Matthew 13, where Jesus gives us that parable of the different soils. But it's interesting how in each of those soils, the relationship to God's word is the key thing that determines the, the state of those individuals. Well, here we're told that the world will choke out the things of God in our lives. So this is why we have this admonition that John gives us. Do not love the world because it will choke out the things of God. Mark 8 verse 36 says, For what should it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? So although the world presents all sorts of things to be obtained, and we have this wonderful marketing machine in the world that tells you all the things you need to buy, and then we'll try and provide ways for you to obtain it, uh, normally plunging you further and further into debt. But this is the world's way. But if you were to gain the whole world and lose your own soul, what actually in the long run have you gained? We'll see that John will make the point that everything is passing away, this whole world. Peter, in the previous letter we were looking at in Second Peter, makes the point that everything is going to be burnt up. This whole world, everything in it, is all going to be consumed by fire. Nothing in this world, nothing material is going to last. So we need to look at where we are putting our treasure. Again, as Jesus told us in Matthew 6. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, we read, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? It's like, where are all the, the intelligent, the academic people, the clever people, those that want to ridicule or question God's word? He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Now notice this, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. So you can't understand God by worldly wisdom. Becoming academically brilliant doesn't help you in your quest to understand and know God. But it says, um, the world by wisdom knew your God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. It's a very simple program that God has in place for salvation. It's simply believing through faith in Jesus Christ that he is the son of God. He is God manifest in the flesh, that he died and paid for our sins and he's risen again. And that if we put our trust and faith in him, we also will be saved. But the statement here clearly shows there is a difference between the world and the wisdom it has, and God and his wisdom. And these two, again, are diametrically opposed to each other. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6, it says, Howbeit we speak wisdom among, among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world. 
So notice the the people we see on telly, the people that um, you typically find on news reports giving their opinion or their expert advice about a particular situation or scenario. Almost always, that's worldly wisdom. It's not in accord with God's wisdom. It's not the same. It's totally uh, in contrast to that. And this is nor the of the princes of this world that come to naught. It doesn't lead you anywhere. So that's not to disparage learning. That's not to disparage going to school and getting an education and those that go on to university and are educated and so on and those that do degrees. Of course, there is merit in all of those things. And the Bible never says we shouldn't learn but that we need to understand that the world's systems are very different from God's ways. Now, in contrast to all of that, didn't John tell us that God so loved the world? So how do we reconcile these two things? You know, in John, uh, sorry, it's John 3.16, Acts 17.24, we're told that God that made the world and all they're in. So, in one sense, John's saying we shouldn't love the world, and yet, back in his gospel, he clearly says that God so loved the world. So how do we reconcile these two understandings of what the world is? Well, in the Greek, the world, the word for world is cosmos. Uh, it's where obviously we get the word cosmology and so on, um, the study of the cosmos. Uh, and it just simply means to bring order out of chaos. Uh, now, just as an interesting aside, I'm not sure what you want to do with this, but it's the same root uh, from which we get the word cosmetics. The idea is bringing order out of chaos. Again, I'll let you run with that as far as you want to, as far as you dare. Um, but specifically, what we're talking about when we speak of the world is the ungodly systems of this world that are manipulated by the devil and opposed to God. Now, yes, God did create the world. God did create, or uh, uh, God has sent his son into the world to save those who were perishing. This is what God has done because God so loved his creation and yet it is twisted, it is bent, it's full of iniquity and that system itself cannot be turned around. That system is just heading for judgment. And yet out of that system, God would rescue all those. It's what we're told, of course, at the end of Peter's epistle, um, that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Um, interestingly enough, uh, it's important to note that in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is referred to there as the God of this world. Very quick summary, back in Genesis, Adam was granted this world. It riled Satan so much because he thought it was going to be given to him. As God is going through the work of creation, and we read in the book of Job that all the angels, all the sons of God shouted for joy. They were just amazed at this incredible universe and everything. And of course, the world was the pinnacle of what God was creating. And Satan thought it was going to be given to him. It wasn't. It was given to man. And that came as a very rude shock to Satan. He then sets about trying to usurp man to try and gain title to the world himself, which he does through the temptation that he brings. Of course, Eve, Adam, both stumble, both fall, and they lose the title to the earth. And for now, the world is under the sway of the wicked one, is what we're told in Scripture. Now, if you remember back in Luke chapter four, verse six, we have the account of the temptation in the wilderness. Now, one of the things Satan offers Jesus is all the kingdoms of this world. He says they've been given to me and to anyone that I want to give them to. And he offers them to Jesus if Jesus would just bow down and worship him. Of course, they will one day be Jesus's anyway. 
Satan will do this. Satan will always offer a shortcut to something that is very often legitimate, but he'll offer it in a way that is not legitimate. And we can apply that in almost all areas of life where Satan brings some sort of temptation. It's a temptation to get something that is not necessarily wrong in itself, but the way that Satan tries to encourage us to go after it is not right. And that's where the problem comes in. It involves stepping outside of the boundaries God has given. So for now, Satan is the God of this world. This world belongs to him. People blame God for all sorts of things in this world, but they need to understand or we need to communicate to people that actually the world has been given over to Satan for now. Now, the good news is there is a kinsman, there is a redeemer, someone who is related to Adam, just as we have the amazing model in the book of Ruth that speaks of a family member who was able and willing to purchase the land, to bring it back, and in so doing would also claim the bride for himself. What an incredible model of what Jesus will do. And in the book of Revelation, we really see the unfolding of all of that as this legal document, this scroll sealed with seven seals, written on both sides. We know it was a a legal document, seemingly the title deed to the earth. You know, your property, your house, there'll be kind of a title deed effectively for it, stating that you as the owner. Well, the earth currently on its title deed has Satan listed as the owner, but Jesus has the right to come and purchase it back because it was originally Adam's and Jesus will do that. And we read in Revelation that the kingdoms of this world are now become the kingdoms of Jesus Christ, of our our God and our savior. And Jesus will claim back this earth for himself and in so doing will claim a bride to himself as well. So that's a brief summary of this plan. But Satan is the God of this world for now. So this statement, don't love the world, actually should carry a lot of weight as we start to think about it. Now, the word we have here translated as love uh, or loves, as you can see, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's the Greek word that I'm sure you're familiar with. It's agape or agapeo. Um, And the idea of this word uh, is to be well pleased with to be contented at or with a thing now we should have that kind of love for god we should be well pleased with god content not desiring anything else that speaks of our relationship to god or the way it should be it's the way that, that god loves us and yet of course this is speaking of the world it says don't be well pleased with the things of this world don't be content with the things of this world as if well this is actually not so bad i'm quite happy with this i'm happy with the world's systems i'm happy with what the world gives me the world's wisdom we should never as christians be content with those things because if we are in a sense the other way of understanding this is to be given over to something if we are given over to the world we're told that the love agape of the father is not in him Literally, uh, if you are given over to the world and its ways, you cannot be given over to God at the same time. You can only be in one or other of those camps. You can't serve two masters, as Jesus said. Another way of understanding this is uh, the love for God is not found in him. This is what it's saying, that the love of the Father is not in him. It's saying that the love for God isn't found in someone who is given over to, who is content with the systems and the ways of the world. If you love the world or all the things therein, or if you are content with them, it demonstrates that you do not really love God. Because if you love God, the things of this world 
would just be as rubbish. This is what Paul tells us, that he found all the things he'd once gained, the things of this world. You know, he was very academic, very bright. He was on the, the council in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. And he says, all those things I had, I count it as rubbish compared to the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. What I have in Jesus is so much better. And this is what we need to come to this place of realizing. And I hope for us this morning we're there. If you're not, and this is starting to make sense, then God is saying that we don't, or we shouldn't be content and satisfied with the things of this world. We should continue to be looking to be fulfilled from godly things, not from worldly things. Now, question, can God hate? Initially, our response to that will probably be, well, no, because God is love. And yet you need to understand that within love, there is the capacity for hatred in its proper application. Now, let me explain. James, in James 4, verses 4 and 5, says, You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. It's a strong word. We'll come back to that in a second. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. This is really very powerful. Do you think that Scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? Speaking of God having a hatred, having an envy, uh, of lusting against the, the world, desiring us. You see, God loves us so much that he doesn't want us to get given over to the things of this world. That word, enmity. In the Greek, it's ekracha, and it's literally hostility by implication. It is a reason for opposition, or again, hatred. You know, this is what God is saying, that if you are a friend of the world, you make yourself effectively an enemy of God, because the world's ways, the world's systems are completely opposed to God. This goes back to some of the things that we were mentioning earlier in our service, and very much in line with uh, what Sarah shared this morning. We need to be careful that we don't just jump on all the worldly bandwagons that are going around at the moment. There's lots of causes, lots of crusades, effectively, that people are fighting. And on the surface, there may seem to be some validity to the claims. But when you start to look at these things, you realize that almost every one of these things is opposed to the things of God. So we need to be very cautious about that which we uh, sign up to, which things we support as believers. Um, in Proverbs, time and time again, it says, don't become surety for a stranger. In other words, don't support a stranger. Don't give financially or in any other way. Don't put your name against uh, something that you don't know what it is or where it's going. Uh, lots of warnings in scripture about those kind of things. Well, picking up verse 16, we read, For all that is in the world, this is John making it clear now, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And then he says, And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. This is very much what Peter said. And he that doeth the will of God abides forever. This contrast. So the things of the world are going. They're all going to be burnt up. But the things of God, they'll last. Now, just on that basis alone, doesn't it make sense that we want to sow to the spirit and not to the flesh to live our lives for the things of God, not for the things of the world, to build with gold, silver, precious stones, not with wood, hay and stubble. Again, that uh, picture that's painted in First Corinthians three, uh, as Jesus said, to put up uh, put our treasure in heaven uh, where nothing will destroy as opposed to being on earth where things corrupt and decay and destroyed and will get burnt up. Now, 
in this verse, particularly verse 16 here, we are given or introduced to effectively a top secret briefing. Uh, kind of classified information, if you will, in the spiritual realm. This is the enemy's battle plan that is revealed. And it's important that you understand this. Let's look at those verses again. We're told for all that is in the world. Now we're told of three things here. The lust of the flesh is the first thing. And then the lust of the eyes and then the pride of life. Those are, the, they form basically a, a trinity of deception that wages war on our hearts and minds every day. And you are not exempt. It doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian for many years, whether you are a mature believer, whether you are a new convert, these things will be a constant daily challenge and you need to know how to combat them and how to address and deal with them. Now, this starts way back in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, verse 6, we read, that when the woman, speaking of Eve, saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Okay, so here we have the, it was good for food. It lusted the flesh. You know, uh, hunger is an appetite we have and it's not wrong. But when it's becomes something that starts to take over, it could be a very bad thing. Of course, it's not good for us to overeat. Um, we all have been in that case, a place, I'm sure, where you felt yourself being hungry and then you've kind of eaten far too much and then you feel bloated and the, the feeling is not good afterwards. You know, suddenly what was good becomes not so good. We'll come back to some of these ideas in a second, explore them more. But the next thing we're told is that it was pleasant to the eyes. There you go. That's the lust of the eyes uh, in this context as well. And then finally, the last one, it was to be desired to make one wise. Well, that's the pride of life. All those three things in there, this trinity of deception that we struggle with, that we are challenged with on a daily basis. So I just want to just highlight again these these three things. So the lust of the flesh. Well, Romans 7.18 says that in my flesh dwells no good thing. Well, that should tell us that we need to be very careful and cautious when listening to the things our flesh is telling us. We have all sorts of appetites, appetites for food, of course. There's a sexual drive. There's all sorts of other things we have. But in their own place, they're not wrong. They're created by God and they're good in their proper environment, in the boundaries that God has set. But when we go beyond those boundaries then it becomes very dangerous. And in our flesh dwells no good thing. You can't go to the flesh for looking for advice on what you should do. And the whole worldly mindset of if it feels good, do it. Well, that is just typical of the world's uh, error in thinking that to make myself happy, I take whatever feels good. Scripture is very clear that you will not find happiness that way. In Galatians 5.17, we're actually told that the flesh lusts against the spirit. This is battle between that which is spiritual and that which is fleshly. Numbers 11 gives us a really good object lesson for this. I don't want to derail the study uh, too much this morning, but uh, if you've got your Bibles and you want to just turn with me to Numbers 11, we read a situation there of the children of Israel. They were hankering, crying out for the things they'd had back in Egypt. I'm just picking up verse 4 
of uh, chapter 11 of Numbers. It says, and the mixed multitude that was among them, it's interesting actually, the group that caused the problem, it's the mixed multitude um, uh, among them, fell lusting and the children of Israel also wept again and said, who shall give us flesh to eat? It's the lust of the flesh coming in here. And we remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely um, and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away and there is nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. And the manna was as coriander seed and the color thereof as bedellium. Uh, and the people went about and gathered it and it, we go on and we find that the Lord grants them their request uh, and allows quail to be blown in off the sea. Uh, as a result of this, uh, I'm just going to pick on verse uh, 18. It says, and say to the people, sanctify uh, yourself against tomorrow and you shall eat flesh. And it goes on and says, you shall, verse 19, you shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither 10 days, nor 20 days, but even a whole month until it come out of your nostrils. Lovely picture. Sorry before lunch to share that with you. But uh, and it'd be loathsome unto you because that you have despised the Lord, which is among you. You see, this is what the lust of the flesh does. It tells you you want something. And until you have that thing, you don't kind of get respite from it. But the moment you have it, you find you don't really want it. It didn't bring you the joy that you thought it was going to. I mean, as as this verse tells us, you know, they got to the point that Israel had this and they detested this thing they'd once been craving for. Now, we see another example of this in 2 Samuel verse uh, or chapter 13 it's a situation with david's son amnon who desires a relationship with his half-sister tamar um now as a result of following his lust of the flesh the love that he had for this young girl turns to hatred you, you see how the flesh promises something that it can never deliver it promises to make you satisfied and fulfilled but it will never be able to do that and as believers we need to understand this principle that it will never satisfy the contrast of course is in jesus you think of the woman at the well uh, and the water that jesus was speaking to her of not the water that was in the well but he spoke of her thirst being quenched well, that's the kind of thing we want. That's how we satisfy those longings and so on. It's by finding our fulfillment in Jesus. And then the other appetites we have have a place, but within that context of that right relationship to God. Okay, the second one on this list then is, of course, the last of the eyes. Uh, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 8, Solomon, uh, with all of his wisdom, makes this telling statement. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. We could just leave it there. Because you will never get to the point that you have seen enough of whatever it is you want to see. We don't need to go too deep into this. I'm sure you can all apply it to your own selves in different uh, contexts. Um, but if thine eye be evil, Jesus said, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. It's often been said that the eyes are the windows to the soul. That which you let into your life will normally come through your eyes. And how deceptive and dangerous it can be when you feast on things with your eyes, when you continue to crave to see more and so on. Jesus again said in Matthew 5 that if I write, I offend thee, pluck it out. This is how serious Jesus was about this and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It seems extreme, doesn't it, that Jesus would say that. And yet this is God manifesting in the flesh, the word of God speaking and telling us that the eye has the potential 
to pull you away from God and ultimately into hell. Now, of course, for those who are saved, we've made this very clear, you can't forfeit your salvation. And we'll look at that. John will conclude with that in a short while. However, it can do so much damage to you. Now, there's an object lesson for this one uh, in Second Samuel chapter 11. This is the situation I'm sure you're familiar with, with David and Bathsheba. Now, I'm just going to turn to uh, the passages. There's a number of things that we could pull out of this uh, portion of scripture. But when we read the account of David and Bathsheba, the impression typically we have is that David happened to be walking around the the balcony or whatever of the palace and just by chance looks down and sees this young lady taking a bath and of course that leads to the problem that we're all familiar with but it's not as simple and clear-cut as that because you find that Bathsheba's grandfather was a man by the name of Ahithophel he was one of David's best friends and most trusted counsellors what that means is that David almost certainly had seen Bathsheba prior to this. Quite possibly, she would have been invited to meals, celebrations, feasts, whatever, that have been taking place uh, in the palace at various times. It's pretty much inconceivable that David had not seen her prior to that evening. The interesting thing is that when David's army was out fighting, he normally would have been there. On every other occasion, he, he went when he could. But on this occasion, he chose not to go. Why did he choose not to go, I ask? Well, I believe it's because this provided an opportunity for the lust of the eyes. He'd already seen this lady. He'd already started to to uh, be, uh, shall we say, inquisitive uh, regarding her. And then this opportunity arises and he takes full advantage of it. You see, the lust of the eyes is not just a simple thing. It's something that builds. It's something that grows. It's something that wants more. We need to be incredibly cautious and careful with the things that we look at. I remember Ken Ham once making the comment that you can't help what you see the first time, but you can control that second look. And I think it's such an important lesson, particularly, I would say, for men, that we need to be very, very careful what we allow our eyes to look upon. And if you look upon something and it produces the wrong uh, thoughts or reaction within you, then immediately do not look again because the danger is so great that Jesus said you're better to pluck and gouge your eye out than to allow your eye to have its way and to keep looking because it will lead you into a place you do not want to go. Well, the last of these uh, three, uh, this trinity of deception, is the pride of life. Now, we're told in Proverbs 29, there's lots of good instruction in Proverbs, of course, but verse 23 says, a man's pride shall bring him low. Verse 18 of chapter 16 of Proverbs, pride goes before destruction. Verse 13, sorry, chapter 13, verse 10 of Proverbs, only by pride comes contention. Well, I mean, there's enough warnings there, aren't there, that we need to be very careful about pride. Um, the one of the ways Oswald Chambers speaks of pride is the, the claim to my right to myself. I must have, I should have, I should be allowed to have, why can't I have, and so on. That's the the whole basis of pride. I want something. In Luke fourteen eleven, uh, we read, "For whatsoever exalts, or for whosoever exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted." 
So those that would push themselves forward, those that try to gain position, it doesn't normally end well. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 6, really a kind of a summary of what I was talking about earlier in terms of Satan's pride. It's speaking about new uh, believers, those who are entering into ministry. And it says, lest, not, not a new convert, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Again, the pride that I must have, you know, wanting more all the time. Now, there's a great object lesson we read for this one. We'll find for this one in the book of Esther, really starting from chapter three as we're introduced to this individual, Haman. And it goes really all the way through to the end of the book. But the three chapters, chapter three, uh, four, or actually four chapters, chapter three, four, five and six, we kind of get a real overview of this individual and the pride that he had that ultimately led to his downfall, uh, but so on. So. Okay, let's move on because I just want to highlight something that I just think is fascinating. Um, and that is that we've got a number of these threes or these trinities in scripture. And I think this is just great evidence of design. Now we see it in scripture, but we also find it in nature. And I'll just throw it in here because you'll see it's applicable and we'll lead on to the next section of the text. You see, the opening statement of the Bible is actually a trinity of trinities, if I may put it that way. We have the statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what's interesting about this statement is we've got the beginning. We've got uh, time, effectively. We've got space in regard to heaven. And then we've got earth in regard to matter. So time, space and matter. So there's a trinity, effectively, revealed to us in that opening statement. And you need all three of those. You see, if you have uh, matter but you didn't have space, you have nowhere to put it. Uh, if you didn't have time, you have no no time in which it could exist. So all of these things make, things make up our reality. But each of those themselves are made up of a trinity. You have past, present and future regarding time. You have space, of course, which is length, width and height, typically. And then matter, the three states of matter are solid, liquid and gas. So with all of these, you see this incredible symmetry of design in the way they are. Now, we see it in our own design also. Of course, we are made up of body, soul and spirit, those three elements once again. But throughout nature, we see it. If you look at the structure of an atom, for example, the same phenomena occurs. You've got these three types of particles. You've got a proton, a positively charged particle. You've got a neutron, which is obviously of no charge. And then you've got an electron, which is the negative charge. And so those three elements make up the structure of the atom, which makes up the structure of every living thing. If you look at it in other things, uh, you have these incredible triangles. I'm sure for those at school, you're still using these. Some of you may remember that far back um, that you use these things. So uh, if you're trying to find the distance of something, then you have speed multiplied by time. But those three things, distance, speed and time. Uh, again, in terms of if you're trying to look at the, the force of something, then it's the work done divided by the distance and so on that it's moved. Um, if you look at uh, from an electricity um, point of view, you've got voltage, current and resistance. If you're trying to find the resistance of something, it's the voltage divided by the current. Again, these trinities is incredible. We see it all through nature and obviously the, the, the mass density volume one is there as well. Uh, and there are many others that you could find. Uh, I just think it's fascinating. Now, there's another trinity that's also revealed in scripture. And it's the antithesis of the divine trinity. Of course, the divine trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we're familiar, of course, with Satan. Um, uh, again, this, this great uh, antagonist uh, that's revealed in scripture, who has this particular hatred for man. I would just highlight here that 
unfortunately through the the medieval period and through artwork often it's pictured that satan is in one corner of this cosmic boxing ring and god is in the other and they're kind of pitted against each other that's not the case god is creator god is sovereign the devil is a created being okay so it's not as if there's this contention and who's gonna win type thing no no god is all powerful he's all knowing the devil is not either of those things the devil is very powerful and in the book of jude and elsewhere we warn very carefully that we need to show due respect but at the same time we need not to be fearful that the devil is in no way a match for the sovereign god However, we are told in scripture that Satan has this fatherly character to him. Uh, he's the father of lies, if nothing else. Now, John's also going to now tell us that there is one who is coming who will set himself up in the place of Christ. And the word that John will use in the following verses is antichrist. Revelation 13 records a third member of this satanic trinity, this false prophet who will point the people to this false Christ, just as the Holy Spirit points people to Jesus, this false prophet who is coming onto the world scene, who will be some sort of religious leader who will try and unite all the religions of the world, he will point them to Antichrist. And so you have, effectively, Satan as the father, Antichrist in the place of the son, and then, of course, the false prophet in the space uh, in the place of the Holy Spirit. So let's just run to the end of the chapter then. Uh, so verse 18, little children, again, that affectionate term that John uses here, it is the last time, right? Be, be under no mistake that we are in a countdown. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, that specific individual that Jesus spoke about in uh, Matthew 24, uh, quoting from Daniel chapter 9 and so on, the Antichrist shall come, in, in Daniel 9 is referred to as the Prince who shall come. Even now, uh, there are many antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. Now, the many antichrists uh, idea, uh, this is people who are opposed to Christ or against Christ. Um, but more than that, they're in the place of, we'll explore that just in a second. But just as an aside, there's actually 33 titles in the Old Testament and eight in the New Testament of this character who we refer to as Antichrist. So although this is the typical name that we use, there's actually a number of other titles that we find. Jesus specifically warns of his coming, as I mentioned in Matthew 24. Paul also warns and gives us the timing. Let me just share this with you. We read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6, for the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now lets or prevents, that's the old King James, we've kind of changed the meaning of the word, it's not the King James's fault. He who now lets will let until he be taken out of the way. What Paul is telling us is that this mystery of iniquity is being restrained by someone who will be taken out of the way. Well, who is it that will be taken out of the way? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. When will the Holy Spirit be taken out of the way? When the church is taken out of the way at the time of the rapture. Because the Holy Spirit has been given to the church forever. So when the church goes at the time of the rapture, the Holy Spirit will also go because the, the, these two now, the Spirit and the, the church have been linked together uh, for eternity, as John uh, records in John 17 and so on. But we're told that when that event takes place, when the rapture occurs and the saints are taken out of this, uh, out of this realm of things, out of this world, it says, and then shall that wicked, this is another title of this one we refer to as Antichrist, be revealed. 
whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. So there's not going to be a, a, a big battle in that sense. The Lord's just going to consume him. Um, and you destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan and with all power and signs and lying wonders. Now, I'm not going to go through all of these. I'll leave them in the notes so you can look at them. But you can see here all these different titles in the Old Testament regarding the, the beast, uh, as he's referred to in the book of Revelation. Uh, you see lots of different names that are listed there um, and so on. So as I say, 33 titles in the Old Testament uh, and in the New Testament, uh, we find there's eight titles. Typically, Antichrist is the one that we are most familiar with. Uh, but Revelation 13 refers to him as the beast. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 speaks as the man of sin and so on. Well, <clears throat> again, even now there are many Antichrists, John says, you know, that they've already come. And there are many in the place of Christ. Now, the danger is they are offering a way to God that is not through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. They purport to offer salvation, but actually all they can offer is death. And John was convinced, as he makes here, that time is short. We are running out of time. We are on this, this spiritual countdown to these things being fulfilled. Verse 19 says, uh, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest that they were not all of us so he's speaking of those who were previously part of a congregation they've moved out they tried to draw people after themselves we read elsewhere so we need to be very diligent and aware of the divisions and this again uh is so applicable the thing that sarah shared with us earlier on today uh, of this uh, reality that divisions will occur and we shouldn't be surprised because there are within our midst tears amongst the wheat. Now, don't assume that Antichrist will have horns and a pitchfork, uh, you know, or, or some obvious telltale sign that we'll know. The, not, not just Antichrist is the, the individual, but those who John is referring to here as the Antichrists, those who are coming, offering a different route to God or offering a different gospel effectively. Many have been in and maybe are still in the church. Okay, and they will look just the same as you and I, effectively. That is until the time of the harvest. How can we know them? Well, interestingly, at the time of the harvest, it's the wheat, the heads of the wheat bow down. But the heads of the others stand up proud. I think this is fascinating, given the days that we're living in. Because I have seen over the last six months a, a really worrying trend within the church. And it's a really militant attitude, standing up against the government protesting about sorts, all sorts of things, you know, refusing to go with government advice. You know, where do we find that in scripture? Well, we don't, is the simple answer to the, to the question. But at the time of the harvest, the wheat and the tares, again, the wheat bears its head, bows its head, the tares stand bolt upright. It speaks of pride. And I, I, I think we're seeing exactly that taking place. So, Again, how do we know them? Well, because they went out from us and they left off fellowshipping with us. So we need to be mindful and watch out for those that are leaving the church or are trying to draw others away after them that are leaving the truth that we hold to, that are not prepared to bow the knee to scripture, to God's word, but will come up with some other argument as to why what they're saying is true and right and we're trying to draw people after themselves. But then John says, but you have an anointing or an unction from the Holy One and you will know all things. You've been given this gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And he says, I've not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. How do we know the truth? Because we have received the Holy Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit came to lead us into all truth. The fact that you are born again means you have the Holy Spirit, which means you are a recipient of the truth that is revealed through God's word that he explains to us. He says, who is a liar? Or in a sense, it's speaking of quantity, that the greatest, what is the greatest of the lies is really the idea here in the Greek. But he that denies that Jesus is the Christ. People that offer a different route to God or, or that try and get onto these seemingly well-meaning bandwagons that the world is uh, uh, championing. Uh, you know, anything that offers a different route to God or to some sort of supposed unity and tolerance, all these kind of ideas that is not through God, uh, would be so careful. And it says he is Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. There is only one way to God. And if you know the Son, you know the Father. If you know the Father, you know the Son. Whosoever denies the Son, the same as not the Father, but he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning, that uh, if that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us. And notice what he says, even eternal life. And let me make the statement that God keeps his promises. We have been given eternal life. You know, if you could lose it, if you could forfeit it, it wouldn't be eternal life. Okay, and God's promise would not stand. But we have been given this promise. We do need to be aware that there is deception. It's going to abound more and more as we see uh, these things unfolding, as prophecy is being fulfilled before us. But notice again the, the emphasis on abiding. John is going to uh, say this now. These things I have written unto you concerning them that seduce you. So I'm writing about these antichrists, those that are going to come and lead you astray. Beware of them. Those that offer some sort of solution that bypasses the cross. But the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you. It just speaks of this, this really close relationship. And you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things and is truth and is no lie. And even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. So our safety net, if you like, to not being deceived is abiding in him comes back to really where we were in the first chapter the fellowship that we have with the father if they have that fellowship with the father we have it with the saints too if you have that fellowship with the saints you'll have that fellowship with the father as long as we stick to god's word so we need that abiding relationship and of course then we'll be sensitive to the leading and the guiding of the holy spirit who came to lead us into all truth so the last two verses and now little children abide in him is that word again that when he shall appear we may have confidence we won't be ashamed when he comes and like the first corinthians 3 that speaks of those that are built with the worldly things the gold sorry the wood hay the straw and they'll be saved yet so as by fire and not be ashamed before him at his coming and if you know that he is righteous you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him you know the judgment seat of christ is at hand 2 Corinthians 5.10 speaks of it. John was expecting Jesus' return imminently. And because of this, John did righteousness. He wanted to be found in the right place spiritually when Jesus returned. You know, if we abide in Christ, his life will overflow in ours. Okay, And the test that we are born again is that we have his life in us through his Holy Spirit. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. 
We thank you, Lord, that we can share these things, that we can look at these scriptures, that we can be encouraged together. Father, help us to be aware of the deception that is abounding and will continue to abound in the days in which we live. But Lord, we know the truth. Lord, you've revealed it to us through your word and you've given us your Holy Spirit to continue to lead us and guide us in all truth. Father, may we truly learn to abide in you and not love the things of this world. We ask it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.